Let's open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. That's where we're going to start this morning. And then we'll continue looking at several passages. Now, we've been doing a series on what it is to be a mover and a shaker. And we've looked at the kingdom years in Israel. Saul, Samuel, David. And we look at one other and how he interfaces with David this morning. One of the greatest words in any language is the word friend. It designates something. It's never a term to be tossed around lightly. A friend is very valuable. Let me take you into a a third grade classroom. One author does that. There is a nine-year-old kid sitting at his desk. All of a sudden, there's a puddle between his feet. The front of his pants are wet. He thinks his heart is going to stop because he cannot possibly imagine how this has happened. It has never happened before, and he knows that when the boys find out, he will never hear the end of it. When the girls find out, they will never speak to him again as long as he lives. The boy believes his heart is going to stop, so he puts his head down and he prays this prayer. Dear God, this is an emergency. I need help now. Five minutes from now, I'm dead meat. He looks up from his prayer And here comes the teacher with the look in her eye that says he has been discovered. As the teacher is coming to snatch him up, a classmate named Susie is carrying a goldfish bowl that is filled with water. Susie trips in front of the teacher and inexplicably dumps the bowl in the boy's lap. The boy pretends to be angry, but all the while he is saying, Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Now, all of a sudden, the boy is the object of sympathy. The teacher rushes him downstairs, gives him gym shorts to put on while his pants dry out. All the children are on their hands and knees around the desk, cleaning up the mess. The sympathy is wonderful. The ridicule that should have been his was transferred to someone else, Susie. As the day progresses, the sympathy grows better and Susie's ridicule grows worse. At the end of the day, they are waiting for the bus. Susie has been shunned by the other children. The boy walks over to Susie and says, Susie, you did that on purpose, didn't you? And Sue whispers back, I wet my pants once too. You see, a friend is a wonderful gift. But friendship means involvement, means getting close, means being vulnerable. And that means getting hurt somewhere along the line. That's why a lot of people have just resigned themselves to this thinking. Well, it's not even worth it. Why risk being hurt? It's a whole lot easier just to be alone and be isolated. You know what? You're right. It is easier, but it's not better. For God said in Genesis 2, it is not good that man should be alone. And that's a banner statement of how we're built. We're built to interrelate with each other, to love one another. We cannot grow emotionally alone. You cannot grow spiritually alone. That's why we have the body of Christ spoken about in the New Testament. We need the friction of other people to help us grow. Before I was married, when I was single, I was the most wonderful, godly person I knew. It took a close relationship to expose all the flaws. There's a whole lot of them there to expose. 
It's funny how great we are when we're alone, but when we get with other people and there's a rub, there's a friction, that's where we begin to grow. David grew because of a friend named Jonathan. Now, we've been talking about the life of David the last few weeks and just what a great young man he was, young man of faith. Yet, I think that if David were here for this series, he'd probably put his hand up and go, no, wait a minute, you forgot somebody. You left out my hero, Jonathan, a good close friend of mine who encouraged my heart many times. And so we want to look at that this morning. And I want to give you five ingredients that show this kind of friendship in the Scripture. Five ingredients of true friendship. The first is initiative. Jonathan takes the initiative. Look back at chapter 17, verse 55. When Saul saw David going against the Philistine, that's Goliath, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I don't know. So the king said, Inquire whose son this young man is. Then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. I want you to picture that. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? So David answered, I'm the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now, it's the same story. It does not break. Even though there's a chapter break, it's unfortunate because it's the same narrative. Now, when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Again, picture this scene. You have a young man holding a head dripping on the floor in front of King Saul. Whose son are you? Well, actually, I come from Bethlehem. He's holding this head. And he's talking probably about the battle and what happened in it as he's standing before Saul. Jonathan, his son, is watching this and hearing this. And their souls were knit together. One translation says chained together. He looked at David. He heard his words of faith. He saw the head in his hand. He was impressed. This guy has guts. My father doesn't speak like that. My father doesn't act like that. I haven't acted like that. None of the army has, but this guy has. He's impressed. That's the first impression. Now, so far, it's all inward. It's an emotional impression that is made. But now we see the initiative that Jonathan takes. Verse 3, Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he, that's Jonathan, loved him as his own soul. I like this idea, making a covenant of friendship. You know, we have covenants for everything else in life. Neighborhoods have covenants. You have a covenant with the IRS. And they will be faithful to make sure you keep that covenant. Why not a covenant of friendship? Hey, David, my name's Jonathan. Let's make a pact. I want to be your friend. Lovely idea, making a covenant with someone. The Bible tells us in Proverbs, he who has friends must himself be friendly. In other words, somebody who has a lot of friends takes the initiative, as Jonathan does here. Jonathan came to David, and he didn't choose to have David as a friend as much as he chose to be a friend to David. There's a big difference. 
If you come and say, I choose to have you as my friend, you're operating from the basis of need and you demand something from someone. When you come as Jonathan did, you operate on the basis of supply and you want to serve someone, you want to give something to someone. That's what Jonathan does here to David. In the Scriptures, Ruth was like that to Naomi, you remember. They were about to split up on the road, Naomi going back to Bethlehem, Ruth going back home to Moab. As they were splitting up, Ruth reaches out and says, wait a minute, where you go, I will go. I love that. Because from that initiative comes a lifelong friendship of these two women as they live their lives together in Bethlehem. When people see your initiative, that you're willing to invest yourself in their lives, that's when they will reciprocate. That's how friendships start. You might say, well, I'm sorry, but I'm not like that. I'm shy. Well, I bet most of the people sitting around you might say the same thing. And then where would we all be? Disconnected. There's a great theological reservoir in the stories of Winnie the Pooh. One story comes to mind. Winnie the Pooh was setting out across the stream to visit his friends one day. And he, he stops in the middle of the stream and sits down on, on a warm rock. And he's thinking who he's going to go visit. So he goes, I think I'll go visit Tigger. He goes, no, I won't go visit Tigger. I'll go visit Owl. No, Owl uses big words, hard to understand words. He goes, I know, I'll go see Rabbit. I like Rabbit. Rabbit uses encouraging words like, how's about lunch, Pooh? (laughs) Or make yourself at home. Yes, I think I'll go see Rabbit. It's a fictional story, of course, but the idea is that those words of initiative rang still in this little character's ears. Somebody was friendly to him, and he responded. Now, the opposite is also true. Even as a man who is friendly makes friends, a person that you find who doesn't have many friends is a very unfriendly person. Very isolated, very alone, and let me add, very dangerous person. For Proverbs 18.1 says, A man who isolates himself seeks his own desires and rages against all wise judgment. You know that our enemies discovered that in World War II? When our enemies experimented to extract information from our troops, they found that solitary confinement was the most effective. Isolate a person long enough, he'll wig out. He'll tell all eventually under pressure. That's why we need fellowship. That's why the body of Christ was developed. You can't be the lone ranger. You can't be independent and function well. We need each other. So initiative is the first ingredient. Second ingredient is encouragement. Look at verse 4. Jonathan took off the robe that was on him. Gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. Remember, David is dressed unlike a soldier. He's got shepherd's garb on. Remember when he tried on Saul's armor? It was too big, too clumsy. So he said, forget this, man. Just give me my sling and a few stones and I'll have at it. He was a shepherd. And now Jonathan encourages the shepherd with a gift. It's not so much the gift as the the statement the gift makes. A robe, 
armor, sword, shield. He's saying, David, you deserve this. You're the hero. You're the guy that fought the battle, not me. I may be the prince. I may be the son of the king, but you're God's man. And encouraged him with his wonderful gift. Wonderful encouragement to David. Friendship is maintained by the oil of encouragement. It lathers the wheels of a relationship. It keeps it going for many, many years. And here it's seen in giving. You know why? Because true love can never be passive. Jonathan gave because Jonathan loved. And true love must express itself. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That's why it's nonsense if somebody says, I told her 20 years ago when we got married, I love her. It's all she needs to know. True love always seeks to express itself, to encourage, to give something. In World War II, when London was bombed, a soldier was driving his Jeep through the streets of London. He saw out of the corner of his eye a little boy, an orphan, no parents, no friends, just alone, standing in front of a donut shop with his little nose pressed up against the window. The soldier knew what was going on in the kid's mind, so he pulls the Jeep over, gets out. He goes up to him and says, You'd like one of those donuts, wouldn't you? And before he could answer, the soldier went inside, bought a whole bag of them, came outside, gave him him the whole bag, say, Here, these are for you. As the soldier turned to get in the Jeep with a smile on his face, he felt a tug at his coat. It was a little boy who was looking up at the man and said, Excuse me, mister, are you God? It was the character of giving encouragement at that point that reminded that little boy of the character of God. Encouragement. Now, this is a happy time that we're looking at in this chapter. Goliath has been killed. Everybody's rejoicing. These friends get together, make a covenant. But the encouragement of Jonathan will follow David even during the lowest moments of his life. Where would David be without this kind of encouragement. Where would he be? He would be very disconnected from what's going on in the nation, from Saul, from Jonathan, even perhaps from God. He'd be aimless. He'd be discouraged. I agree with William Barclay who said, we have a Christian duty to encourage one another. Have you ever thought of that? Have you ever thought that there's somebody that God wants your encouragement to be given to. He wants to use you to encourage someone to further them along. And maybe you ought to think of that person right now and think, how far could they go with the right godly encouragement that I could provide in their life? Listen, I've had many times where the right person at the right time got me over the hump, got me over the hurdle, encouraged me by some word, some gift, some encounter. The ability to come alongside somebody else and cause them to be more mature comes with this gift. It is so needed. Unfortunately, it is so absent, even among believers. Henry Drummond asked a probing question. He said, how many prodigals have been kept out of the kingdom of God by some of those unlovely characters who profess to be inside? It's a good question. We've all heard or overheard Christians talking with each other, sometimes putting people down, gossiping. When the Bible tells us, encourage one another, how often? 
Daily. Hebrews 13. Encourage one another daily. That means today. We have an opportunity and a duty to encourage somebody. Tomorrow. Tuesday. Every day. Encourage one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching, said Paul. I love what one person said. He said, a pat on the back, even though only a few vertebrae removed from a kick in the pants, is miles ahead in results. What do you like? Are you prone to give people a good kick in the pants, get them motivated? Or a pat on the back to encourage them the right way? The third element is risk in this friendship. Look over at chapter 19. You want to see risk? You'll see it. Verse 1, Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. This is a royal decree now. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, My father, Saul, seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. And I will go and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak with my father about you. Then what I observe, I'll tell you. Thus Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant against David, because he has not sinned against you, because his works have been very good towards you. For he took his life in his hand and killed the Philistine, and the Lord brought a great deliverance about for all of Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? Saul is so bent on David's destruction, he persuades everyone in the army to kill him. This guy's nuts. One person who wouldn't be persuaded, that's Jonathan. Why? Verse 1 tells us, Jonathan delighted greatly in David. The Septuagint translates it, he prized David highly, stuck up for him, prized him. He is willing, if you look in verse 4, he spoke well of David. He's willing in reminding of his father of David's faithfulness. He's willing to risk his own relationship with his father for his son. The founder of the Navigators, headquarters in Colorado Springs, great, great organization for discipleship, was founded by a man by the name of Dawson Trotman. Dawson Trotman was considered an expert swimmer, among other things. That's what makes his death so unusual. He died drowning. What happened is the story is recounted. He was on a boat, I think, going across Lake Michigan, if I'm not mistaken. The boat was going under, capsized or something, and people were panicked. Some of them couldn't swim, especially in the icy waters. They weren't as fit as Dawson Trotman. And so Dawson Trotman spent his time going under the water and pushing people up to safety. And as soon as one would be taken, he'd go under, get someone else, and push him back up until he finally died of exhaustion and drowned. When he died, and they ran the cover article on a major news magazine, they had his picture and his name, Dawson Trotman, and underneath they wrote these words, always holding someone up. Isn't that a good description of a friend? Holding someone up, pushing them up. Jonathan comes along and in front of his father risks his relationship with dad, pushes David up. And it worked. Look at verse 6. So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan and Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. This won't last very long. Saul is schizoid. 
He's docile now. He'll be a raging lion in a few moments. In fact, if we read down, we see that David is in Saul's presence once again, and Saul loves to play that old game, pin the spear on the musician. Does it twice. David flees for his life. Now turn over to chapter 20 as the narrative continues. You want to see a true friend risking his own neck for someone? Verse 24 of chapter 20. Then David hid in the field. And when the new moon had come, the king sat down to the feast. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on a seat by the wall. And Jonathan arose, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul didn't say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He's unclean, meaning ceremonially. And it happened on the next day, the second day of the month, that David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, Why has the son of Jesse not come to eat yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked permission to go to Bethlehem. And he said, Please let me go, for our family has a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. And now, if I have found favor in your eyes, please let me get away and see my brothers. Therefore, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame, to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. Now therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he be killed? What has he done? And Saul cast a spear at him, his own son, to kill him, by which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. Wow. It's been said that blood is thicker than the milk of human kindness. That may be true of everyone else, but it wasn't true of Jonathan. Even though there was this blood connection with dad, he knew that his friend David was called and anointed by God And he was willing to risk his own life and reputation for it. Now, when I think of this, I can't help but think of the familiar description of love in 1 Corinthians 13. You know the one, the description, the beautiful chapter. It sounds so much like Jonathan. Let me read a few verses of that chapter in the New Living Translation. I think it describes him perfectly. Love is not jealous. It is not boastful. It's not proud. Love is never glad about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. Love is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Love will last forever, or as we know it, love never fails. Let me tell you something. You're rich if you have somebody in your life like that. Someone that can hang with you, that you can call at three in the morning be it a husband, a wife, a child, a parent, an associate, somebody that's a friend. An English magazine a few years ago offered a contest for anyone who would come up with the best definition of a friend. 
They offered so much money. And several people wrote back with such descriptions as this. A friend is one who multiplies joy, divides grief. We've heard that. A friend is one who understands our silence. Another one, a volume of sympathy bound in a cloth. Another, a friend is a watch which beats true for all time and never runs out. These are all beautiful descriptions. Here's the one that won. A friend is one who comes in when everyone else has gone out. The whole world has gone out on David. Saul went out. The army has gone out. His wife eventually is out of the scene. Nobody's for him except one guy who would risk reputation and life named Jonathan. And that's an ingredient in friendship. Proverbs 17 frames it for us. It says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. You know, it's during times of trouble that you really understand who your friends are. They stick with you. They stand with you. I think of my pastor in California, Chuck Smith, as one who will risk his reputation in friendship. I've watched him stand up for people and take public flack for it. Someone that he believes in, defending his friend. And even when the tide of public opinion would go against Chuck, he didn't seem to care because he knew it was right. And he knew his friends. Brings us to the next ingredient, the fourth ingredient of true friendship is seen here, and that is spirituality. Spirituality. And to me, this is the most important element because it has lasting results. Turn over to chapter 23, please. I'm going to begin in verse 7 and then look at a couple other verses for background. Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah. So Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he has shut him Self in by entering a town that has gates and bars. So Saul called all the people together for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. You see how much of a nut Saul is? He gets his whole army. We're going to attack one man. He's in that city. We'll kill the whole city to kill him. That's what David's up against. Verse 13. So David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah and went wherever they could go. Then it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, so he halted the expedition. And David stayed in the strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. And so David saw that Saul had come to seek out his life, David was in the wilderness and Ziph in a forest. Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. A better translation of that is he strengthened his confidence in God. It's very insightful to me because it shows me that David needed his confidence strengthened in God, that it was probably waning a little bit. Notice that phrase in verse 14. It says, Saul sought him every day. David's daily activity consists of, how can I stay alive today? There's a guy every day that's hunting my life. Now, you might say, yeah, but last week we saw in Psalm 59 that David rejoiced in the Lord his God. Yeah, that was then. 
But now, every day, he's a little bit weak and a little bit weary of this. And a little bit shaky, perhaps, in his own confidence. Maybe saying, hey, God, are you even in this? Are you going to protect me? I'm being chased around Israel. And so Jonathan came and bolstered his confidence in God. The friendship had spirituality. Now, what I love about Jonathan is he doesn't come and point his finger at David. He doesn't get shocked. David, wait a minute, you're supposed to be a spiritual leader. What about all those cool psalms you wrote about? God in and faith and blah, blah, blah. You're a failure, Dave. Rather, he encourages. He strengthens. He points him back to God. One person noted that you can always tell a real friend by the fact that when you've made a fool of yourself, he won't make you feel as if you've done a permanent job. David's scared. He's not too confident. Jonathan strengthens that. Proverbs 27 comes to mind. You remember it. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. David's edge was worn. It needed to be sharpened by Jonathan's iron friendship, and it was. I'll never forget when I was uh, still single living in California. I had a guy who was a friend of mine. In fact, I hadn't heard from him for years until just this week. And so I'm reminded of His name was Jerry. Jerry loved the outdoors, loved backpacking, and he gave me a, a real love for it. Well, he talked me into going backpacking in Death Valley, which is below sea level, and starting below sea level and climbing up very high and up a peak, Thousands of feet above sea level. So, you know, I'm up for the idea of this. So I don the backpack, and I mean, I look like Joe Camper. And I get up there, and I'm doing great for, oh, say, three minutes into this trip. Then I start whining. Are we there yet? This isn't fun, and it hurt. Well, this guy was not only an, an expert backpacker, he was a great encourager. Great motivator. Got me going, got me into it. And I made it to the top and I loved it afterwards. But it was that episode of whining that was like a threshold in my life. I've often thought about the Christian life like that as we walk in the Spirit, as we hike this journey. Sometimes it's tough. And our flesh screams out for deliverance. I'm not having fun right now. This is hard. And that's why during those times we need spiritual brothers and sisters to say, Excuse me, God is still on that throne. God still has a plan for your life. This is what the Scripture says. By the way, that's what started this friendship. Remember how it started? David killed Goliath. Jonathan was impressed. Do you know why I think he was impressed? Because of how he did it. Remember, David didn't go out there with sword and spear. He went out in the name of God. He comes into the camp. And he says, who's this guy? He's defying the armies of the living God. And then he stands in front of Saul and he says, Saul, God will deliver me. And he'll deliver that guy to my hands. Great faith. And then he stands out in the battlefield and he says, hey, you come to me with the sword and the spear. I come to you in the name of the living God. For the battle belongs to the Lord. You know, Jonathan heard all that stuff. And he thought, amen. Amen. Yeah, this guy loves God. 
And that's how the friendship was forged. Their hearts were in unison because they both loved the Lord. Stuart Briscoe, in his excellent commentary on the life of David, said, The secret of lasting friendship isn't simply trying to find someone who is like yourself. It's to develop a heart for God and seek others who love Him too. That's the task of a good friend. Point that person back to God. By the way, that's the task of a good counselor. A good Christian counselor will point that person's thoughts back toward God. Get him in touch with God. Not get him in touch with his inner child 14 years ago or what he feels about this necessarily or his esteem as much as, hey, God has some real answers here for your life. This can be changed in your life. Let's get back to him. Let me strengthen your hand, your confidence in God. Finally, the last element of this relationship of friendship is humility. And we'll close with this. Look at verse 17, same chapter. He said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king. I love this. And I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. And David stayed in the woods and Jonathan went to his own house. Keep in mind who Jonathan is. He's Saul's son. There's a dynastic succession going on where whoever's in charge is the king. His son, grandson takes over. It's just how it worked in those days. But Jonathan knows better. I may be the king's son, but you are anointed by God. God's hand is on your life. And David, even though my father cast me as the star actor in this role as king, I would be privileged to serve backstage and pull open the curtain for you because God has his hand on your life. In other words, he's willing to take second place, not first. An admirer of Leonard Bernstein, the famous conductor, went up to him one day and said, Mr. Bernstein, what do you find is the hardest instrument in the orchestra to play? And he said, second fiddle. He said, you know, I can always get first violinist or first French horn, first flute. But to get somebody to play second is very difficult. And yet, without them, there's no harmony. Jonathan is willing to humble himself and push David into the position he knows God has for him. So, let's apply this. Take these two thoughts home with you. Number one, make sure you have a friendship with God. You know, Jesus is called the friend of sinners. I like that because I've needed that friendship. I need it every day. And some of you have come, and you've come to church, and you are faithful to Put your physical body in a chair every week. But you don't have a relationship with the God that we've been speaking about. You don't have a friendship with Him. He wants to be your friend. He wants to know you and have you know Him personally. Then second, develop. Develop earthly friendships based on these five principles. Reach out. You say, well, I'm not an extrovert. I'm shy. Get over it. A man who has friends must himself be friendly. Now, um, I think the way to approach it is not to say, yeah, I need a Jonathan. Nobody's interested in me. Say, I will be a Jonathan. I'm going to look for a David. Someone that I can operate in their lives on the basis of supply rather than just need. 
Let me just uh, say that for men, I think this is the hardest. Some of us men have a difficult time in having good, godly, close, brotherly love, friendships, relationships. For some reason we think, well, that's not cool. You need others. I'm going to sum it up and close with this paragraph. It was written by a pastor after a friend had a conversation with him. The neighborhood bar, he said, is possibly the best counterfeit there is to the fellowship Christ wants to give his church. The bar is an imitation dispensing liquor instead of grace, escape rather than reality. But it's permissive, accepting. It's an inclusive fellowship. It is unshockable. It's democratic. You can tell people secrets and they usually don't tell others or even want to. The bar flourishes not because most people are alcoholics, but because God has put it into the human heart, the desire to know and to be known, to love and to be loved. And so many people seek a counterfeit at the price of a few beers. With all my heart, I believe that Christ wants his church to be unshockable, a fellowship where people can come in and say, I'm sunk, I'm beat, I've had it. Alcoholics Anonymous has this quality. Our churches too often miss it. Ought not to be so. You might hear that and go, yeah, they need to do something about that. Guess what? We're all a part of they. It lands back in our lap. What shall I do with this? Father, we pray that we would take a holy initiative to encourage, to risk, to humble ourselves, to give spiritual advice and point people back to God in the relationships that we have. It would be great, Lord, if husbands and wives would begin at that point and these things would be inclusive in their relationship. It would be great, Lord, if parents and children would begin at this point and then move outward into the other relationships of life. Father, I pray for, for us, your body, that we'd act as the body of Christ. And then, Father, I pray for anyone who's really not a part of your body, who feels disconnected, who feels like they don't know you personally, that they would come into that friendship with God. In Jesus' name, amen.